Today's sermon comes from Isaiah chapter 10, verse 33, through chapter 11, verse 10. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lock the bows with terrifying power. The great and height will be thrown down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall as a majestic one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Henry Worsley was a former British Army commando and Arctic explorer. And Henry Worsley was obsessed with his leadership hero, who was also had been an Arctic explorer, Ernest Shackleton. And Worsley lived by his hero's creeds and models for life. And, and the one that he lived by, or one of them, was by endurance we conquer. And so Henry Worsley pushed his limits and beyond his previous milestones. And he lived by all of these kind of miles, not just Shackleton's, but there's another one, a poet he loved, that had this phrase, always a little further, a little further. And so Worsley set out on what he had designed to be an 80-day solo journey to be the first person to cross the Antarctic unaided. So he set out on this journey, minus 40 degree temperatures, wind blown, fatigue, exhaustion, dehydration, all of that set in. He, he had gone 900 miles in a little over two months to the Antarctic. And at that point, his body started to break down. Dehydration, sickness, exhaustion. He got 30 miles away from his goal when he finally called in for help. But by the time the airlift got there, his body was already gone. And he ended up dying. He had written in his journal, never, ever give in. It was the motto that he had taken from his leadership hero, Shackleton, and that very similar. Never give up. There's always another move. Now, we hear a story like that, 
and probably have different responses to it. It's a refusal to fail. And I would say that that's a great picture of our culture in general. But I would also say it is a picture of the gospel of hustle that can exist in the American church. Which says there's no such thing as failure. But the only failure is not getting back up. The only failure is not learning from your mistakes and then continuing on your journey to success. Failure is not an option. We can rescue ourselves from failure. This gospel of hustle, here are some phrases that would define what we're talking about. Everything is possible if you will only believe. Or everything you need is already inside of you. But this is the, the gospel of hustle. This is the, you can rescue yourself from failure if you will just tap into the strength that you have, and if you'll just muster up the strategy and wisdom that's inside of you, you can do anything. Ironically, that's exactly the motto that Israel followed in the first ten chapters of Isaiah. We have read about their epic failure. It started after King Solomon when the kingdom of Israel uh, was divided into the northern and southern tribes. The northern tribes, the ten of them called Israel, decided they were going to rescue themselves, distrust God, partner with other nations to rescue them out of their troubles. They, they walked away from God. They rebelled. They did their own thing. They tried to establish their own nation. Their, their sin and rebellion was front and center. Very obvious. But then you had the southern tribes. You had these two southern tribes called Judah. And for the most part, they kind of stayed faithful to God and his covenant, at least on the surface. But what we see is that a deep spiritual apathy has set in even the southern tribes. You say, what is spiritual apathy? Spiritual apathy is when all of the, or most of the outward behaviors are in place. But the heart is absolutely disengaged. Well, what happens with spiritual apathy is eventually the heart catches up. And when your heart's disengaged, eventually you stop the outside of the outward behaviors. And that's exactly what happened to the southern tribes, led by their king Ahaz. Ahaz was for a while there doing the right things, and then his disengaged heart finally started to play out, and he started to act out, which meant that he was going to distrust God, and he was going to look for another nation to rescue him out of his troubles, which he saw was the Syria. And so that's exactly what he did. He, he rebelled against God, he left God, and then the people followed course. And so the southern tribes fell into absolute sin and rebellion, God poured out his judgment. He poured out his judgment through the nation of Assyria coming to invade and attack. And then after that, he poured out his judgment on Assyria, which was his tool to discipline his children. And that's where we arrive in verses 33 to 34 of chapter 10. 
Behold, the Lord, the Lord God of hosts will lock the bows, the terrifying power, the great the height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. The forest was cut down. There were only stumps left. Now the stump, the tree stump, is a powerful image. Because when you look at the stump, all the former vitality and life is gone. But there's hidden vitality in the roots. And that's where Israel, that's where Judah found themselves. They were a stump. You ever felt like a tree stump? You ever felt like all the former, former vitality in your life is gone? And maybe all that life is gone, and maybe even you begin to wonder is there any, is there any root? Is there any life left in the root? Hidden somewhere? Because the form of vitality is absolutely wrong. That's what it means to feel like a stump. And that's where God's people were. question is, who rescues you when you find yourself in that situation? When all the outward signs of vitality are gone. Who rescues you? Who do you turn to in that moment? Maybe the deeper question is, how does God respond to you in that moment? When you have failed, when you have personally failed and left you to be a stone, or maybe when someone has failed you and left you in that place, but when you find yourself in that place of failure and the, the vitality of life is gone, who do you turn to? Who rescues you? A.W. Tozer says, what we think of God in moments of deep failure is important because we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. The secret of who you really are, the key to life, the key to you responding well in moments of failure is not your self-image. It's your God image. It's who God is in that moment when you find yourself like a stone with all vitality gone. And who rescues you when you fail and you find yourself in that place? That's what this passage is about. First, you're rescued by the trustworthy king. Verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Jesse was the father of King David. There were no other kings in Israel's history that were given the title son of Jesse. That was reserved for David. And then we read in Matthew's Gospel, when he opens his Gospel, he calls Jesus Christ the son of David. That Jesus Christ was a direct descendant of David. 
Now, when you look at Israel's history, all the way up to this point, King Ahab, king after king after king had failed. God's people were accustomed to kings failing them. And they usually failed in one of two ways. It was either character failure or it was administrative failure. And yet we see here from the stump of Jesus, direct descendant of David, King Jesus. And what you see about King Jesus in this passage in verses 2 to 5 is that his character and his action or his actions are in complete harmony. Unlike the failure of all the things God, God's people have experienced, who failed in character or in action, King Jesus' character and action come together in perfect harmony. Let's see verse 2. Verse 2, a spirit of wisdom and understanding. That's for leadership. Wisdom and understanding enables you to make good decisions. That's action. Spirit of counsel and might. That's for battle. Spirit of counsel and power to defeat the enemy. Again, that's action. Describing King Jesus. But then, you have the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Or fear of Yahweh. That's holiness. That's character. Verse 3 is also a combination of character and action. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Jesus delights in his Father. That's character. Jesus delights in his Father, loves his Father. But then what's the second half of verse 3 mean? He shall not judge by what his eyes see, nor decide to speak by what his ears hear. This means that Jesus is able to distinguish between appearance and reality. It means that he discerns the heart. We see this in his earthly life when he is able to Tell the Pharisees what they're thinking before they ever say it. Jesus sees past the appearances. He sees into the heart. Nothing's hidden from his sight. That's that's discerning of his action. Verse 4. Also a combination of character and action. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meat of the earth. With righteousness, with rightness. Jesus isn't clothed in the trappings of human ego that oftentimes lead to injustice. Like with righteousness, meaning Jesus is passionate for justice. And not only is he passionate, but look at the second half of verse 4. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Jesus speaks. He doesn't even have to speak. He can breathe and get it done. He has a passion for justice and he has the power to accomplish justice. In Christ, character and action are in complete harmony. Now, you can't say that about earthly leaders. There are earthly leaders that have great character. But they don't have wisdom and discernment to make good decisions and get stuff done. On the other hand, you have leaders that can get stuff done. They're amazing at moving things forward and 
were getting stuff done, but they had zero character. And so they leave a string of wounded people in the ditch behind them. In Christ, character and action come together. But because human leadership is not in perfect harmony in that way, that explains why you and I are guarded in our human relationships. That's why we're guarded. Because we can't completely trust the person that we're in relationship with. And there's a guardedness. Because of that failure of character, or failure of action, or some combination of both, this is the reality of human relationships. And even in the relationship where trust is at the center, marriage is a guardedness. And I'll just say, even in the most healthy and flourishing marriages, there is a guardedness. Why? Because we live, we live between Genesis 3, the center of the world, and the return of Christ. We inherit out of sin, and to some degree, we inherit our first parents' dysfunctional marriage. What happened when our first parents distrusted God? What's the first thing they did? They hid. They hid from God, but they hid from each other. Suddenly, there was a suspicion. There was a suspicion in the relationship that maybe this person is not out for my life. And so I have to guard myself. And I have to be guarded. Not only in marriage, but in, in friendships. There's wounds, there's a history. Christ is different. Christ is perfectly trustworthy. Because in Christ, his character and his action is an absolute. You can trust Christ without being guarded. You can trust Christ without being guarded because it's in his character is impeccable and he's never failed you, he never will. Hardship, hardship is not evidence that Christ has failed you. Hardship is evidence that Christ is impeccable in his character, has a deep love for you, and has a perfect will for you. And so while there are human relationships that you are guarded with because of the fall, there is only one human being on the face of this earth. You can't see him right now because he's in the heavenly realm. But he has a body. He's a human being. It's Jesus Christ. He's the only person that you can completely and fully trust without being guarded. Because of Christ, character, and action. Or There's a movie that came out in the early 2000s called The, the Stepford Wives. And the husbands of Stepford, Connecticut, decided they were going to turn their wives into robots so that they never crossed their husband's will. Which made for beautiful wives, beautifully compliant, but no one would look at that kind of relationship and say it was any kind of marriage of intimacy or trust. 
trust is controlled. Guarded trust is veiled control. Because what guarded trust says is I'm going to open my heart up to you. I'm going to give you access to the deep parts of me. But as soon as you cross my will or threaten to cross my will, the walls are going up. That's guarded trust. There's a control going on. Where I'll let you in, but I'm in control of my life and making sure I keep tight reins on it. Is your trust of Christ reigns when things get tough in your life? Then that's a guarded trust with And essentially, in that moment, you have a step for God. You essentially have a God of your own making that you will trust as long as He doesn't cross your will. Christ is perfectly trustworthy because He has impeccable character and He has your best interest in mind. And He's never failed you and He never will fail you. Trust him. Who rescues you when you fail? First, the trustworthy king. But second, the curse removing king. Verses six to nine describe a world that you and I can't imagine. But it's a world that existed before Genesis 3 was sent into the world. It's a world that we can't imagine. The coming king described in Isaiah 11, which we know to be Jesus Christ the Messiah, is a king who removes the curse that Adam brought onto the world by his sin. And you say, where do we get that from verses 6 to 9? Well, first of all, the curse that God pronounced on the world after our first parents distrusted God and sent into the world. There's an aspect of that curse that's described in Genesis 3.15. God says, I will put enmity, or that means hostility, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. The curse was pronounced on the snake or the serpent that represents the devil. And God said, I'm going to put hostility or enmity between you, serpent, and the woman. Your offspring and the woman's offspring. Now look at verse 8 in Isaiah 11, how this verse is removed. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And the adder is any of the snakes that are in the micro family. You see what's happening here? What, what is being communicated? There's no more hostility. The hostility between the woman and the serpent and the snake is gone. And with the curse removed, now, world, new earth begins to look like what it was, and even more what it's going to be. So you see, the hostility is gone. Wolf. Dwells with the lamb. So even in just the created world, the animal world, 
leper lies down with the young goat, calf and lion together. And then in the end of verse 6, this is beautiful. And a little child shall lead them. A little child shall lead the animals. Just like Adam in the garden led the The curse has been removed. The youngster to have dominion over creation. Just like Adam and Eve had dominion over creation in Genesis 1 2. Verse 7. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. There's a fundamental change within nature itself. The lion and the ox eat the same food. Meaning the lion eats straw. The lion becomes a herbivore. No more wild discovery. Where you watch the lion hunt down the zebra on the African plains. I mean, there's a fundamental change happening here. Genesis 1.30. Gets at it. A return to this. And to every beast of the earth. And every bird of the heavens. And everything that creeps on the earth. Everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. There's a change in the very order of things. When this first removing king. Jesus comes back. He will fully, he's already done it in principle, he will fully, fully remove the curse that was put on this world by our first parent Adam. And that's already happened through death and resurrection of the first removing thing which we're going to get to. If I were to ask you what's wrong with this world, you would have no problem answering that question. Right? I mean, you have a list of things about what's wrong in this world. School shootings, child abuse, sexual abuse, addiction, homelessness, terrorism. Right? The list would go on and on. But I bet this isn't what you would say. You wouldn't say that it's wrong that there's a wall of glass at the zoo it's me and my child from going out and petting the tigers. You wouldn't say it's wrong that on wild discovery you watch a lion attack a zebra and eat it. You say it's just food chain. Or you wouldn't say it's wrong if there's weeds in my yard that I can spray. The brokenness of this world goes far beyond what we know. And the, 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 the curse, the spread and the width of the curse on this world is far beyond what we could ever imagine. What that means is we see parts of our functioning world as normal, and they're not normal. We normalize things that shouldn't be normal. Because the brokenness is so far beyond what we're aware of. Even the hostility, we talked about hostility in the animal world. The hostility of human relationships. Just the difficulty of friendship. And the tension that mounts. And the disagreements and the arguments. We, what do we say? I don't know. That's just how life is. That's just the human condition, which is true post fall. But that's not normal. Tension in relationships is not normal. Disagreement, that's not normal. Fights, that's not normal. And it's because the brokenness of our world is far deeper than we are aware of. 
in the same way that the beauty of the new birth far exceeds anything that we could ever imagine. In the same way that brokenness goes deeper, the beauty goes far more than we could ever imagine. In the book of Revelation, John gives a vision of the new earth, the new heavens and the new earth. And he's given the task of really, in some ways, describing the, the indescribable. And so he describes what he sees in the new earth. And he, and he uses phrases like this He says, There's walls made of jasper, and cities made of pure gold. And the foundation of the city walls are decorated with every kind of precious stone. Those are the kind of descriptions he makes in Revelation. And usually, we'll take those and say, wow, the streets are pure gold. And it stirs our excitement for a world that has opulence everywhere. And that's completely missing the point. The point is that something that we hold to the highest esteem and value in our world, like gold, becomes common material. In the new earth. I mean, something as rare and precious and expensive as gold becomes the material for a street in the new earth. That's the point. It, it, it's supposed to stir our imagination to, oh my goodness, what we think is beautiful in this world, it doesn't even compare. I mean, it's just barely scratching the surface of the beauty in the new heavens. And all of this means that when you fail, and when you've been failed by others, and it reduces your life to feeling like a stump, where all the vitality in the life is broken. Jesus reminds you that he is the first removing thing. And he's rescuing you in such a way that your suffering and the hardship of the present time isn't even worth comparing. Romans chapter 8. With the beauty and the glory of the story of the Who rescues you when you fail? The trustworthy king, the curse-removing king, and finally the sacrificial king. Verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In verse 1, Jesus was described as the shoot who would come out of the stump of Jesse, meaning Jesus was a direct descendant of David. Verse 1 emphasizes Jesus' humanity. But here in verse 10, Jesus is called the root of Jesse, which means the origin of Jesse and David and all of humanity. Verse 10 emphasizes Jesus' divinity, that he's God. That he created Jesse, he created David, he created humanity. 
is both human and God. And the root imagery of verse 10 also highlights that when there's a stump that looks lifeless, there's living life in it. When your life feels and looks like a stump, and there's no more vitality on the surface. If you're in Christ, there is life hidden in the roots. And it's not your life. It's the life of Jesus inside of you. Sustaining you. He's alive. John 15. Jesus is the vine. We're the branches. The vine is pulsing life into the branches. And so when you're a stump, the assurance is not, well, if I can somehow get my act together, I can reassure myself that I'm good and that I'm, I'm saved and I have life in Christ. No. When you're a stump, if you're in Christ, the assurance is that Jesus has not left you. He's in you. He's the root. And He will. He will push out green shoots of life. Because Jesus is alive. Verse 10 says, the root shall stand as a signal for the people. What's a signal? A signal is a, a flag or a banner that's waving, that draws people in. Right? We went to the uh, Connor Farms corn maze yesterday. There's a big corn maze, and when you go in, they give you the option of carrying this long stick with a red flag on top. I'm like, what's that all about? Well, so if you get the corvette and you get lost and stuck, you raise that flag and you wave it. They've got a spotter. And in comes the ATV and pull you out. But it's the flag that goes up. A signal, it means a flag or a banner that draws people in. Jesus said in John 12, 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus was speaking of being lifted up on the cross. The signal for all people is the cross. And oh, what a signal it is! A signal of sacrificial love. Of Jesus Christ giving his life so that you could have life, of Jesus Christ dying so that you could live. The word the scriptures use for this is atonement. It means to be covered, that Jesus literally covers you. He takes the lashes on his back. He absorbs the wrath of God. He dies so that you can live. That's atonement. And whether you Receive or reject the atonement of Christ. I want you to see that every one of you benefits from a form of atonement every time you believe. You realize that every time you eat a meal, something dies to provide that sustenance. Something was plucked from a branch or pulled out of the ground. 
or something in squalor? To sustain you. To give you food. So we, we experience atonement on a daily basis. Now, the reality is that when you eat a nice burger or a nice piece of steak, you don't look at that hand or get die so that you could be sustained and you can reap the benefits without considering the cost. It's actually hypocritical to reject the atonement of Christ or to say, I don't need someone dying for me. I can take care of my own life. I don't need a thing. It's actually hypocritical to say that and then benefit from atonement that is. Something dies that you can be sustained with food. The reality is, we are drawn to atonement. Our very hearts are drawn to this concept of atonement. It's the reason why you and I are deeply moved when we see, whether it's a movie or a, or a story or a news segment, when we see someone willingly die for another. It's why our hearts are moved and broken at the same time. Say why? Why are we moved by that? Because our souls are created by a God who sacrificed himself for us. It's wired into us. And so we can you can deny atonement with your head, or you can deny atonement intellectually. But your heart's not full. Because your heart responds to King Jesus is the sacrificial king. And it's his sacrifice that gives evidence of his trustworthiness. And it's his sacrifice that gives the assurance of the curse being removed. So Jesus is trustworthy, he's the first written king, but all that is true because of his sacrifice. And then his resurrection from the dead. King Jesus is drawing broken, wounded, scattered people out of bondage to himself. That's what he's doing. Verse 12 of chapter 11 in Isaiah. We didn't read that far, but verse 12 describes how Jesus is gathering people from the four corners of the earth. And verse 14 of chapter 11 then describes how he's using his gathered people to go gather others. That's the mission of Christ. That's the mission of the church. We gather. We're gathered by Christ and then we gather. And so the question is, have you experienced the rescue? Have you experienced the gathering of Jesus? In your own life? And not only one time, but are you experiencing it on a daily basis? Are you experiencing the rescue and the gathering of Christ? And then having been gathered by Jesus, are you then as his representative gathering others 
into your home, into your life, to hear the amazing news of this rescue. Like Noah, let's pray. Father, it's amazing how the history of your people thousands of years ago rings so true in our hearts and our minds that we experience in similar ways what your people experience. We understand the imagery of the stone. Some of us resonate deeply with that this morning. We feel like all the former vitality in our lives are gone. And there's an emptiness, a deadness, and yet we hear that in the midst of that place of, of just deep brokenness and failure, that there's life. And it's not life that we have to find by tapping into ourselves. It's you, Jesus. But we're in Christ. There is life in us. Even if it feels deeply different. And Jesus, we trust you. We know that your impeccable character, that your perfect actions are going to push life out and into and through us. Jesus, we thank you that you are the human being that we can trust without being guarded. That you're trustworthy. That you remove the curse. That you sacrifice your life. And that you're gathering your children. And for those of us that have said yes to Christ, we're grateful for your gathering. And yet there are so many around us that haven't been gathered yet that need to hear the good news. And in the midst of failure, there's life that is found in Jesus. Father, as we close the worship now, would you stir our hearts? Stir our hearts towards your Son, Jesus, and the love that you have for us. In his name, we pray.